welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This is Valeria Mendiola. I am an MPAID student in my first year, and I'm also a CID ambassador. Today, we are joined by Osir Ali, the co-founder and COO of Alter Global, a network of tech entrepreneurs across emerging cities in the world, discussing some of the most crucial aspects of early-stage entrepreneurship in developing countries. I'm sitting down with Osir after his appearance in the CID speaker series at Harvard Kennedy School on October 25th, 2019. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak with us today. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm going to start asking you some questions about your talk and mm -hmm. about uh, your work in general. Mm -hmm. And first, I would like the audience to get familiar with the work that Alter Global does. Why don't you start by briefly explaining the purpose of Alter Global mm -hmm. and how your work impacts economic development around mm -hmm. the world? Mm -hmm. So, as you mentioned, Alter Global is a network of early stage entrepreneurs across emerging cities. We work with these entrepreneurs who are building not just their companies, but also their communities and their countries, because I think supporting their vision is really what gets me out of bed in the morning. And so we work with these entrepreneurs by providing them access to resources from what we call Silicon Valley, but broadly from the developed world. So we provide them with access to capital, talent, and networks. I can dig more into what all of those involve, but over on in, in terms of an overview, that's what we do. Okay, so I, I believe that you focus on tech companies, right? Correct. Why yeah. tech and what kind of companies? Yeah, so when we, when we started off actually out of, out of Stanford, uh, I think four years ago now, we were pretty sector agnostic, so we didn't actually care about which sector we invested in. Over time, we realized two things, uh, which led to the focus on tech. One is that the biggest change that has happened in a lot of developing markets is the rise of information and communication infrastructure. And so that has led to a lot of opportunities, not just for businesses, but also for improvements in access to certain products and services for the average consumer. And so that led us to believe that if we had to have a focus, that would be it. And then the second thing, was that coming out of Stanford and since Alter Global was founded out of the Valley, we realized that that's really where our, where our expertise was because we can connect those businesses to experts that they would otherwise not have access to. And we could find them talent that they would otherwise not have access to just because you know, we were fortunate enough to end up in that place. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit more about one of the projects that Alter Global has been involved in? How has it contributed to economic growth, economic yeah. development? Yeah, so we work with a wide variety of entrepreneurs across Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Africa. So no two businesses are the same, although you do see a lot of trends emerging across different markets, particularly in logistics and fintech. But the one company I'd like to focus on right now would be Prava Health, which is a company in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And the entrepreneur was actually herself an MPAID. Oh, so nice. yeah, so Silvana was an MPAID, I think a few years ago now. And she uh, ended up actually working in New York as a lawyer for a little while before going back to Bangladesh. And really, Bangladesh had this problem where the average, like, this is not uh, folks living on like a dollar a day, but the average consumer would often go to India to seek health treatment because there was what she believed a lack of trust within the system. And so combined with the lack of facilities that you would see in any other developing country, what that meant was that an average doctor would spend an absurdly little amount of time somewhere in the seconds with each patient. And so patients were not getting the right treatment that she felt they deserved. And so as that on like as an entrepreneur, she is now working at Prava Health, which provides patients with proper time with doctors. And so they're doing a subscription-based model instead of a fee-based model. Mm -hmm. So that patients have access to doctors whenever they feel like. They're trying to tailor an outcomes-based approach, which is novel even for the US. And they have developed one of the best lab and testing facilities. Mm -hmm. And so she's providing solutions. 
at the, her, at their healthcare facility in Dhaka that people would not have otherwise access to. And when it comes to something like health, people are willing to pay a lot of money and even go to like you know neighboring country to get that treatment. And how has exactly Alter Global like impacted this venture yeah. in particular? Like. Just to go mm-hmm. more in deep into what, yeah. what are you So doing? we work with Silvana, not just in helping her, trying to find the right kind of capital for her, mm-hmm. but also what I think is most impactful is helping her connect her to talent from here. So we have managed to place two consultants as a part of our fellows program, which is also something we can dig into, but that's designed to bridge the talent gap between ventures in the US and ventures in developing markets. So R- Rachel, who actually left her job at DCG, went and worked with Prava for six months on a number of their strategic initiatives. And then we have Emma, who's on secondment from McKinsey, and she is currently like taking up, picking up from where Rachel was. And she's currently in Dhaka working, working with Silvana directly. We're also trying to help them find a, a CTO. That's actually a, a very common theme. We haven't been able to figure that out, but that's you know one of the rarest skill sets to find for a health tech company specifically. So that's uh, those are some of the initiatives we're working on here. No, oh, okay, sounds yeah. great. And what evidence do you have that the projects that you end up investing in actually work? Yeah. So there's two parts to this that I will answer. One is how do we know we're actually having an impact on business growth? Like, mm-hmm. is what we're doing helpful to the entrepreneur? And then there's the other question: is if 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 the entrepreneur succeeds, is it helpful to their overall ecosystem? Yeah. So the first one, as silly as it sounds, we just ask them straight up: like, is this helpful? You know, like uh, how much value have we contributed? We judge that what my own success is measured on is a net promoter score. Like, are these entrepreneurs who will become evangelists for us, who will then go to other entrepreneurs in their region and say, you should work with Alter ahead of any other company because they're providing services or value that I can't get from anywhere else. So that's really what we just judge ourselves on. We also like have a principle we're working with entrepreneurs is that we want to have a finger on their pulse or on the business's pulse, but not be invasive. So we don't ask them for like tons of data. We simply ask them for, I think, two data points or three data points per year. But the most important thing is to be in touch and understand what their needs are. Finally, most of the services we offer and a way to gauge value is that they do pay these fellows. So they're not free labor. And so presumably, if the fellows were not adding value, they would not continue with the program. And the fact that they are paying them a salary plus for their housing, plus for their FI, means that they are contributing something of value there. To the second question of now we kind of have established that the entrepreneurs find what we do helpful. Is this actually contributing to societal change? That I think is a bigger question and that kind of ties into our theory of change, which is more academic, like more theoretical. And I think the evidence for that will only be borne out in the long run. And how do you actually make these projects to grow, you know, because you're talking, you're telling me about this specific project in Mm -hmm. Bangladesh, right? Mm -hmm. How do you make these small venture to actually grow to impact more people and even people like from outside of Bangladesh. Yeah. I think I would be taking too much credit if I said I make these projects grow. I think most of the hard work is done by the entrepreneurs. A lot of hard work is done by the employees. I don't think we contribute. Like our own our whole thing is that we want to contribute like the top 10% of value that they would not otherwise get in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like honestly like we consider ourselves to be the butlers in the story. We're not supposed to be up, you know, out in front and taking the credit for this. I think like it's their hard work that they it's really scale. It's yeah. their baby. They care most about this. We like our job and our mission is to make sure that they get what they need to succeed. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take credit for that. Like, I, I don't think I can make them okay. succeed. Which are the main characteristics that you look for in an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to in order to invest in their projects yeah. and their ideas? 
Yeah, so most of the entrepreneurs that end up working with us tend to be uh, from the diaspora. So like I would say 70-80%, not all of them, but a lot of them. And they predominantly come from, you know, the upper class in these countries. I think the combination of two, the two, like the diaspora plus people coming from the upper class in entrepreneurs usually leads to questions of like, why are we supporting these? But I believe that those are the ones that are best positioned to take the risk that comes with entrepreneurship because they have a safety. They're not going to be hungry if it doesn't work out. They're not going to go broke. Yes, they would have lost significant income, but they have that safety net. And so oftentimes that's kind of what the social demographic characteristics of the entrepreneurs look like. Not this is what we choose for, but this is what ends up happening. What we explicitly look for is that the entrepreneur is dedicated to a mission that is not just like, I'm going to maximize wealth out of this. And so, but they are quite capitalist in nature. So they do believe that capitalism is a force for good. And they do believe that like they can have a business solution for the problems that they are addressing. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of times the entrepreneurs just see a problem and want to solve it. They have this irresistible itch that that's kind of what needs to be done at that point. And they keep doing it and like they're very, very tenacious. So that's really what we look for. The final thing that we check is oftentimes we do due diligence on the founders' backgrounds. Mm-hmm. We've learned this the hard way from some of the other markets is we really need to make sure that these are people who we can trust. Because, you know, as, as, as people working out of the U.S., we don't really have a lot of recourse if things go wrong. Also, which do you think are the main challenges that these new entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in developing cities face? Yeah. A lot of it, we've realized, is not just around raising money, but also finding the right talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a talent gap between these markets and what we are used to in the U.S., particularly when it comes to highly skilled talent. Also because highly skilled talent is very mobile, so you would often find that most brain drain happens at that level. And so... You know, local entrepreneurs do suffer from it because it's very difficult to entice people to come back to work for these startups. Oftentimes, their startups, these startups are, you know, they're the one of a one of kind startup. So they're tackling problems that have not been resolved in that country in any meaningful way. And while they may have been resolved in any other country, that means that they have to then find that talent that may have expertise or experience with that from some other place and bring it back. How do early stage entrepreneurs in emerging markets deal with the fact that there might be a lack of high skilled workers to hire for these technology intensive mm-hmm. sectors? I understand that you sort of try to convince people to, you know, move to yeah. developing cities, but how do you do it in practice? Yeah, it's really tough. And I don't think we've fully cracked it. I think we do the fellows program as a stopgap measure where people can take six months out or a year out of their you know, usual jobs and just see what it's like to work with one of these ventures. Mm-hmm. And since the gap is so large, most of these ventures actually agree to do that because they believe that whatever talent they're getting, that access to talent is valuable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sure they would like it a lot more if this were talent that stayed. But I think for us, for now, the strategy is to just start off with offering some people the option to just try it out and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it builds from there. I think there's a lot more research to be done on what the right strategy is to find and recruit those members in the diaspora that are interested in going back and finding out what can, what can convince them to actually do that. I, you know, this is an active point of research within Alta. And once we have the solution, hopefully we can scale it, not just for our companies, but broadly, because I think this is where a lot of value lies for economic development in a lot of these nations. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about how in the past couple of years, unicorns have become a, a very big thing mm-hmm. in, in the startup world, yeah. right? So what are your thoughts about aiming for startup companies to combine technology with economic development yeah. to become unicorns? Yeah. Like that as a goal itself. So a unicorn, just briefly speaking, is a company that has achieved a billion dollar valuation 
how these valuations are calculated is anyone's guess, but it's in the tech world something that is widely accepted as a marker of success for any startup is to get to that billion dollar valuation. So in our current markets, there are some that have had more unicorns than others. I don't necessarily see that as a marker of success. Most entrepreneurs are doing this because they want to have a problem or a, a local solution that they need to get from their community. And oftentimes that's not that they want to create a, a billion dollar valuation. I think hopefully we try and screen for that in our screening process because as I said, most of these entrepreneurs do these things because they see a challenge or a problem in their local ecosystems and they just want to fix it. Mm -hmm. The unicorn aspect comes in much later and I don't think we would ideally take on someone who in our first conversation says like, I want to build a unicorn. Because yeah. like most, like the entrepreneurship journey is really tough and whenever you're building a startup, the numbers aren't with you when it comes to the fact that the likelihood that you actually get to that valuation is going to be, you know, it's, it's really, really small. So if you're doing it for that reason, either you have a huge superiority complex that you know something that no one does, or you somehow like are fooling yourself in some way. So most of these entrepreneurs, I would say, don't actually get into this with the ambition of building a unicorn. And that's what makes it appealing to work with them it's because they have that mission and drive because they want to do something and fix something in their ecosystem or their community. You know, if it becomes a unicorn, I think they wouldn't mind. Mm -hmm. But if someone starts off with that thinking, I am pretty sure they're not going to survive the downturns that happen with any company because mm -hmm. uh, that would be a great time for them to get out because I don't think like the entrepreneurship journey is, is not an easy one. Also, I find it very interesting how when we talk about startups and mm -hmm. these uh, startup world, usually governments are not usually like mentioned very often. Yeah. So do you think there's a role for the governments to participate in, to, to grow the entrepreneurial yeah. ecosystem in, in these developing countries? Yeah. I think there can be a role. I don't know what that role could be or should be. I think government is often expressing like the will of the people in any given place. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a part of policy that comes from like what is most efficient. There's a part of policy as a, as a social contract between different places. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that's a very difficult question to answer about what the role of government should be. I think when it comes to value creation, I don't think the government is the best actor to creating value. Yes, it can redistribute value if it chooses to, but value creation, I think, is the job of the private sector, and that's really where we find our focus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sure the government, if it thinks that the entrepreneurial ecosystem can be an alternative to combating unemployment, I think they can probably structure incentives around it and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. But I still believe that's a part of an overall social contract that the government ideally should be representing. Yeah, of course. And also, there's, I think there's one very important question, just to make sure that the listeners can understand mm -hmm. the, uh, how Alter Global differentiates from the other venture capital firms. Yeah. Like what, how would you define that? Yeah, we, uh, we really see ourselves as a community of founders and like entrepreneurs that you know, help each other out as well. And so one of the ways that we want to engage in the future is by helping entrepreneurs source other entrepreneurs, because I think that's the best way for this ecosystem to grow is because Oftentimes, these entrepreneurs are pioneers and they can best identify the talent and the sectors that need more capital or more support. And so that's why we're trying to help these entrepreneurs better find other entrepreneurs within the ecosystems. And that's our vision for how to help these communities really grow and create value. So we are piloting programs like right now, they're just on the drawing board right now, working with these entrepreneurs and trying to create that kind of value. And I think that's what would set us apart. I don't think any any other VC company has such a, a program at the center of what it wants to do. And then secondly, we are, for you know better or worse, we are a VC that is very dispersed across the world. 
we don't believe we are experts in any one geography and i think sometimes it's hubris to assume that one is and so we understand our limitations and we know that we can really realistically add only like the 5 10% of value that really any any vc brings to the table and we're pretty open about that so well thank you so much for joining me today osir uh you can find more information about osir's work at alter global at alter.global you can follow alter global on twitter at alter_global To learn more about CID's research events and upcoming speaker series lectures, visit us at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back next week.